Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North on Friday, June 9th, 2023. We are coming to the weekend, so we always try to have discussions that are a little bit more substantive, a little bit more in-depth, not subject to the really nitty-gritty, horse-racy news of the day or all that stuff. But uh, today, I wanted to tackle two big freedoms, academic freedom and religious freedom, the uh, latter of which we'll start off with because I saw on CBC the other day, an article uh, talking about the fundamentalist Christian movement that wants to remake Canadian politics. Now, uh, if you get by the scary language in the subheadline that talks about an ambitious anti-LGBTQ group that's part of a populist movement, they're getting all the buzzwords there. Uh, the article itself is actually fairly substantive in nature. It talks about uh, some figures that we've had on this very show, people like Pastor Aaron Rock and Pastor Jacob Rayom, who are religiously Leaders that have decided to go full steam ahead into the political world, which is not a particularly holy place, but nonetheless, it's one that I think a lot of Christians and Canadians realize is an important space to be in, because if you're not there, you're allowing your rights to be trampled on. And I think in the last three years, the church in Canada and houses of worship in general have seen that in ways that were probably pretty unprecedented to those who have only been around for a couple of generations. Uh, despite the fact that uh, worship is so safeguarded in law that it's actually a criminal offense to disrupt worship, we saw governments literally locking churches out of their buildings because they dared to assemble when the public health edicts told them not to. So uh, is the solution to this in the political realm? Well, uh, court cases have not been going well for people in general that have been filing COVID challenges against the government, and public opinion is often stacked against those who were critical of lockdowns and mandates and restrictions. Now, being the minority does not mean you're wrong, but it does mean you have an uphill battle ahead of you. So I want to talk about that a little bit with Pastor Jacob Rayom, who hails not far from me in southwestern Ontario from the Trinity Bible Chapel. He's been on the show a couple of times at least and joins us again now. Pastor, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Now, th this story that I was just mentioning uh, before I brought you in from CBC, I, I actually think was generally pretty fair. It gave ample opportunity for uh, a lot of people within the Christian community to comment on this. But I, I think that the the premise of the story is where I have some issues here, because it's clear that there are a lot of people, and I think probably CBC journalists are, are among them largely, that are very uncomfortable with the idea of Christians mobilizing to get involved in politics. Well, I guess that came out pretty clearly in the article, and it came out in some of the response that we've received to the article. And, I, and like you, I thought the article represented me fairly well. They did say that there was only 200 people at church the day that he was there, but we've consistently had about 1,200 people at church on Sunday. So I, that was one fact that was off. There might be a few other little things here and there. But yeah, I, I mean, I was happy with how my views were presented. So let's talk about the politicization of the church, if you will. And I, I don't mean that in a negative way, because one of my frustrations has always been, as a Christian, that oftentimes people in my church communities ha have been very, uh, very oblivious to politics, often deliberately so. And I, I think churches themselves have often been. And I, I've talked to pastors about this that have said they don't want to alienate people that have uh, different political views in, in their congregation, which I think is generally a, a very fair way of putting it. But I, I don't know if any of those 
those arguments hold when churches are targeted by politics and churches are targeted by the state? And I think we've seen that especially in the last few years. Well, I think one of the problems that we've had over the last few generations is that people were comfortable living in, I guess, the fumes of a Christian culture. So Os Guinness called it, um, we're a flower pot or a, a, a cut flower generation. So the flowers will only flower or blossom so long as they're, um, there's water. But when they're cut from the ground, they're going to die and wither eventually. And, and we've lost our Christian roots as a society. And one of the things that the churches have neglected to do is teach um, how Scripture itself interacts with public policy, and which is one of the roles of the pastor in discipling the people. Um, and so that's something that I've been trying to work on with my congregation over the last several years, and I know a few other pastors have awakened to the fact that this might have been a deficiency. Has this always been something that you've been somewhat more alert to than some of your colleagues, or has this been a more recent revelation for you? I, I, I actually thought my colleagues were more alert to it than they were. So hmm. consistently, I mean, I've had people in my church come back and say they've listened to my sermons from 10 years ago, and they say, yeah, we can understand why you've taken some of the stands that you have, because you were saying the same things 10 years ago. But I have been, I guess I've been broadsided by the, the deficiency that is there within a, a lot of churches, and it's disappointing. Yeah, and one of the things I, I think I felt generally in society, and I, I take this not just looking at churches or, or places of worship, but even businesses, is that when liberty was taken away as swiftly as it was, going back to March 2020, uh, people started to be very content to settle for small things. So, you know, for example, when people were allowed to eat on patios, uh, when restaurants were still shut down, they were all grateful because, well, at least we could do something. And I, I feel that uh, places of worship were very similar as well. It's like, ooh, whoop-de-doo, you get to gather in your parking lot. That, but that's not a win. But, but things were so bad that these small things were, were seen as legitimate compromises, I think. Yeah, I didn't think that was a win at all back then. And, and so when we were going through the first lockdown, I was in the process of, of, doing, uh, of uniting our church around the idea that worship, especially worship on the Lord's Day, is something that is to be directed and controlled by the revelation of God and Scripture. And so it's not the government's prerogative to decide how, when um, we get to worship. It's, it's really up to the Lord Jesus, and he's made clear what his expectations are in Scripture, which includes a free gathering of his people uh, together. Um, so uh, I would definitely agree with you on that. Did you find that there was a level of uh, you know, camaraderie with uh, leaders from different faith groups? Did you find that the imams and the rabbis and the pastors and the priests were, were generally united on this or no? I've had, I've had very little interaction um, with people outside, if any, of our um, own kind of theological, uh, I guess, grid or confessional statement. So some of the men that were named in the article that uh, is in question, I've, I know them quite well. Uh, but outside of that, the interaction has been minimal. And I think that right there may be part of the problem. I mean, ideally, people would have all been gathering together in the same way that I think a lot of you know, atheist libertarians may have gotten together with you know, Christian social conservatives to resist lockdowns. But I think that there should have been more of a push from people of all faith groups and people, I think, not even faith groups. I mean, people of all groups in society to understand the importance of religion to people who are adherents to religion. And that was, I think, the big problem is that you have a culture 
that, as you mentioned, has been drifting away from any sort of spiritual grounding. And it becomes very easy to just use COVID as justification to just give it that final kick. Well, the, the reality is, 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 our, is our civil rights and, and liberties that we have inherited and, and that have been ours since time immemorial, haven't, they haven't come to us from a, a smorgasbord of, of faith groups, as we, as we might call them, but they've come to us and they're deeply rooted within the fertile soil of biblical Christianity. And so these have been passed down to us from uh, you know, our, our Christian forebears. And if anyone should have stood up, and this was the greatest disappointment to me during the lockdowns, if anyone should have stood up, it would have been it should have been those Christians who believe the Bible. But I'm I'm afraid that um, perhaps our history has been lost, and perhaps some very important teachings from Scripture have been lost. And it's my it's one of my missions to help recover that. Well, and beyond that, you actually had Christians that were not just declaring neutrality on this, but but some that were going out of their way to look at uh, churches like yours or uh, Henry Hildebrandt's uh, fellowship in, in Elmer, Ontario, the Church of God, and saying, well, they, they don't represent us. They're not real Christians. We're happy to go along with this. We're, we're happy to do this. And And I think you compound that with a media that wants to put a very... very decidedly pointed view of of what a a good Christian is forward. And and you have that very dynamic that led us here. Yeah. And that's, there's always people that will do that and they'll try to distance themselves from you. If you're finding yourself in hot water and you become a little bit of a hot potato, I guess. And we certainly found ourselves uh, that way. And there were people who I thought were on our team before we went into these um, lockdowns of the last few years, starting in 2020, that we didn't, we haven't come out, and you know, let's just say I haven't gotten some Christmas cards in the last few years. Let me talk to you about the the road forward, because you know, obviously, in your case, which we've covered at True North, and I've talked about it on my show, that the courts have not been kind to you, and they have not been kind to a lot of these legal challenges that have come up uh, against COVID regulations in general, not just from from churches. The political class, you know, liberal, conservative, NDP, Bloc Québécois, generally speaking, all united uh, in support of, of at least some form of this. Now, whether that changes now with a new conservative leader is uh, something that I, I think people have debated and, and should debate. But the point is that, generally speaking, it was very isolating being you, I, I suspect, if you were looking around at the world, not your your faith community. And, and I'm wondering why on earth you would still have a level of hope or confidence that you can make changes in that world, that you can actually get politically involved. Because I, I think a logical outcome to what you've gone through would be that we need to just retreat and be even more insular. Right. I heard someone say this morning, I was listening to, a, I think it was a sermon from another pastor, and he made the point in his sermon that Throughout the 2,000 years of the church's history, the church has died several times, but we serve a God who raises the dead. Hmm. And so my hope is ultimately grounded in a God who has the power to raise Christ from the dead. And, and this wouldn't be the first time it looks like the church is down for the count. And, and perhaps what's gone on in the last three years is a, real, is a real gift from God, because what it's forced us to do is it's forced us to purify as a church, and it's forced us to reevaluate the way we think on a number of things, and it's for and it's bringing forward what the Bible actually has to say about matters that per, that intersect with public policy, which um, are really our foundational rights. Is um, is is Canadians? This is what they were grounded in. They're grounded in the very scriptures, and uh, in in the actual Ten Commandments. So, whether we're going to have a a conservative party replace the uh, Liberal Party in Ottawa, that might slow some of the rot that we've seen in the last little while. But my sense has been. 
um, over the last decade or decade and a half that we're either going over the cliff at 100 miles an hour with the liberals or 75 miles an hour with the conservatives. And, and what we really need is a, is a grassroots reformation that grounds the country again in Scripture uh, in, a, in a similar way in which we were founded. Uh, let me ask you then, Pastor, do you think that the Bible is politically prescriptive? Do you think that a, a Christian who adheres to the Bible has to, along with that, have a, a particular set of political views beyond uh, you know, views of you know, the Scripture themselves? Well, absolutely, because Jesus Jesus said, "You render unto God what is God's, and you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's." And that very statement is politically loaded, because all of a sudden Jesus is declaring that He is the one that decides what belongs to Caesar, and He is the one that hmm. decides what belongs to God. And so Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has delegated to Caesar um, a certain role. And what is Caesar's job? According to Romans chapter thirteen, Caesar's job, the government's job is to protect the good and punish the wicked. And then you and then you well, who defines what is good and who defines what is wicked? And that's where you get back to as Paul teaches in the book of Romans, right where that passage is found, it's the it's defined by the 10 commandments. So all of scripture applies to all of life and there's not one square inch of this world that doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. And I think for too long Christians have thought, well, our my Christianity is relegated to my heart. It's relegated to me in a relationship with Jesus. It's relegated maybe to the church if we're not in a lockdown. But at the end of the day, either Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord of at all. And so I, I believe that Christ is not one God among a pantheon of gods. He is the Lord God of all. And that absolutely intersects with um, all, all, all spheres of life, especially political life. I mean, even the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, that was a political statement when that statement was made in the first century. Because that, that, by that point in time, as you know, Roman, Rome had become a, essentially a dictatorship. They didn't, they didn't call mm -hmm. it that, but Caesar was the de facto god of the, of the Roman Empire and, and declared that he was Lord of all. And so when Christ was born, he was born under the nose of a dictator. And um, and essentially declaring his lordship was a political threat to the, the Roman system of governance, which, by the way, was absolutely fine if you practiced your religion in your little sphere of, of Roman life, so long as your religion folded under the orders of Caesar. He gets final say in what goes on in your church or your whatever, your, your synagogue. And so the, the early Roman Empire in the first century had a hard time with Christians for that very reason. And we need to recover that heritage, I think, as believers. Well, to approach my question a different way, I mean, one of the challenges of politics is, is that so much of what comes up and so much of what's debated is really irrelevant to the to most people, and 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 even things that are relevant to some are irrelevant to others. So, you know, there are debates on what percentage the corporate tax rate should be and and what salaries members of parliament should take home. And I and I, I don't think that the Bible is prescriptive on the very intricacies of you know what percentage of corporate tax or for for example. So, I, I guess the question I'd ask is how much political latitude is there? Uh, for a, a Christian, in, in your view, within our political system? Because on the stuff that does matter, on the stuff where uh, the Bible and, and other religious texts do speak out, uh, those are often the issues that our political system doesn't want to go near. Well, I, I think that, absolutely. So I think you're in reference to gay marriage or, or, or abortion or something like that. Those are issues mm -hmm. that, are, that are almost perceived as third rail issues. But I also do think that the Bible does have something to say about economic policy. 
but it does provide an arena in which to, to operate in. So it provides a fence and then there's freedom within the fence. It provides a fenced yard and there's freedom within the fenced yard. But so, but if you look at the, at the commandment, you shall not steal. Well, that, that commandment isn't, it applies to the government. You, you have to understand that, that the Ten Commandments were given to a people who had just been released from slavery in Egypt, and the Pharaoh was claiming ownership, not, not just over all private property, but over all persons. And so the whole concept of you shall not steal, is, is that means that just as the commandment you shall not commit adultery means, you know, a man's not to share his wife with another woman, the commandment you shall not steal means my property is my property. I can't, you know, you know, you can't come and say, well, my name's Caesar and, or my name's Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau, and I get to take your property and do what I want with it. This, like, free enterprise is wrapped up within that commandment. Mm-hmm. So, this this modern kind of secular socialism that we're living under is a concept that is completely foreign to economic policy uh, that is rooted and founded in Scripture and the economic policy that we've inherited as English speakers. Yeah. Because our history is so deeply rooted in Scripture itself. But but to jump on that, I mean, one of the things that I found so because you are correct about that, and I say touche on 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 that because of your answer. And I will say that it's been infuriating to see so many people try to recast Christianity as inherently socialist. And there's been this this weird wave emanating from sort of the United Church Anglican Church of Canada uh, orthodoxy that that Christianity inherently necessitates state control because you know of all the things that Jesus commands us to do as individuals, people think, well, the government should do that. Right. Well, we have to understand that the United Church abandoned biblical Christianity a long time ago. And Mm -hmm. if you want to look at, you know, one of the reasons our country is in this sorry state that it is right now, it's largely because of the United Church of Canada and their rejection of biblical orthodoxy. Because if you go back 120 years, the the turn of the 20th century, 95% of non-Catholic Ontarians were were in a Protestant evangelical church. And a lot of those churches were were Anglo or were uh, United Churches, and so, but there was a shift in the '60s and the '50s where they went from being clearly and definitively evangelical to something that is completely foreign to biblical Christianity. So, and and in every age that you live in, in in the ch- history of the church, there is always people who are trying to synthesize the spirit of the age, so the culture of the age with Christianity and call it Christianity. So you're getting some type of hybrid or some type of mutant between it's it's a mixture of the two but but that but that as you look at scripture is always considered a compromise we're not supposed to do that and you even look at the kings in the old testament they say well he did this good but he kept the the high places to the the worship of baal or the ashtara poles and that's nothing more than a synthesis and that's exactly Mm -hmm. what these people are doing whereas the job of the faithful pastor is to put biblical christianity in antithesis to the spirit of the age, the prevailing sins of the time. And, and that's really something that I'm, I've been trying to do. And there's a number of other pastors um, who, you, who you know and are aware of who are trying to do the same thing. Yeah, and it's funny, as I was uh, even thinking about what I was going to talk to you about today, I was like, you know, I think there's a much bigger conversation we need to have. So uh, let me know in the, the comments if you want to have this, because one idea I had would be to, to bring back some of the folks in this story we were talking about, to bring back Jacob and, and Pastor Aaron Rock and uh, Pastor Michael Thiessen and, and have it out on this on a, a much larger frame. So if that interests you, let me know. I hope we can get you back for uh, that as well, Jacob. That's great. Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right. Pastor Jacob Rayom, keep up the great work, and thank you. God bless you. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show.
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Good to have you with us. We started off talking about religious freedom, and now we are going to move into academic freedom, which uh, you may recall reared its ugly head, not academic freedom, but the threats to it, a few weeks back in my own city when the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, of which I'm a member, was trying to bring Joanna Williams in for a lecture, and the local library would not rent them a space. They said she would violate every policy they had, their workplace harassment, sexual harassment, their policy on damage to the venue, all this sort of nonsense. And I did file a freedom of information request with the library when that happened. I've not yet gotten that back, but I will certainly have a full report and publish those documents when I do. But I do want to delve into the idea of academic freedom a little bit more and also talk about the idea of rights, because this has been one of the most complicated and sometimes annoying uh, trends in our modern political discourse, where someone will Will say, I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. I have a right to a safe space. I have a right to this. But there are also things that are very important rights that I would argue are non-negotiable. The right to life, the right to freedom of expression, academic freedom, press freedom, all comes along in that. So at that very event that I was talking about, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship uh, meeting, I had the chance to hear Patrick Keeney, who is a visiting professor at Chiang Mai University, but he is Canadian, speak about this idea of what he called rights talk, uh, of this idea, of, as it sounds, just talking about rights. And he'll explain it a little bit more eloquently than me. But I wanted to interview him about that and, and delve into that idea a little bit further and also talk about some of the broader issues with academic freedom. And Patrick Keeney actually wrote about uh, academic freedom in an interview he did with the C2C Journal, a great publication that is a very good friend of True North and a very good example of independent media. And he actually talked about it with uh, SAF's president, Mark Mercer, on his way out about the broader themes of academic freedom and what's going on in the world. So I wanted to delve into that and lots more with Patrick Keeney. You'll have to excuse my wardrobe change. I actually did this interview a couple of days ago, so it's a bit disjointed. Normally on the big film sets, they have a continuity director who makes sure that everyone's wearing the same shirts and the windows are shut to the same way. But we don't have a continuity director on the Andrew Lawton show. So I just uh, point out that I'm wearing a different shirt and you're going to have to live with it. But this was my interview with Patrick Keeney of Chiang Mai University. And joining me now is the professor himself, Patrick Keeney, who wrote that fantastic piece in C2C Journal, is also a visiting professor at Chiang Mai University. I've been to Chiang Mai. I've not been to the university. It's a, oh. a lovely little spot. Uh, Patrick, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you, Andrew. It was delightful meeting you at the SAFs meeting. Um, that was already, what, a week ago, 10 days ago, something like that? Yeah, the time is uh, just flying by here. And, and it right. was interesting because I, I want to talk about SAFs itself. You wrote this uh, great piece in C2C Journal in which you talked to uh, Mark Mercer, who's been on, on this program very recently, about SAFs and about the, the broader landscape of, of academic freedom. And I was wondering for you how that's been, because obviously every academic has their own path on this issue, it, it seems like. And, and academic uh -huh. freedom increasingly means different things to different people, especially when you decide it has to be balanced against things like diversity or equity or, you know, oppression mm -hmm. and, and whatever. So what's your, been your relationship with the academic freedom discourse? Well, I've had a, a mixed uh, relationship, shall I say. I mean, I wound up in Chiang Mai probably because uh of situations here at ubc okanagan um i mean i i think mark has been 
absolutely uh, a national leader in all of this, and I'm happy to say that I followed in his path. Uh, there's always been a little bit of tension in the academy about how we ought to proceed, shall we say. So, um, yeah, I, I, th I think I've had, as I say, a mixed bag with, uh, with academic freedom. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now, Andrew. Yeah, and obviously in your interview with Mark, here's a guy who's a very mild-mannered, even-keeled, I don't like the word moderate because it implies a level of political classification that I don't think is necessarily appropriate, but he's not a firebrand, he doesn't court controversy for the sake of it, but he's also been in the thick of this himself, and I think that's one of the most cautionary tales when you hear these stories, is that even people that think they're safe from going through what many professors have gone through often aren't. Indeed. And, and Mark is, to me at least, the epitome of, uh, of civil discourse. I mean, uh, he exudes the kind of tolerance and uh, capacity to entertain uh, opposing ideas that I think all of us professors should take on board. Uh, it's sometimes difficult. I know we all have strong views about a lot of things. And when we hear people who have opposing views, who are equally passionate about those views, it's difficult sometimes to maintain your um, composure, shall we say. And I think Mark has been exemplary in you know, showing us how to do that. His book, by the way, uh, is, is a fabulous book. I'd like to plug it right now in praise of dangerous universities. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I think uh, Dr. Mercer has brought uh, into the public domain the kinds of ideas that weren't all that radical even a few years ago. I mean, my first professorship, my first appointment was in 1991, and in the space from 1991 to today, uh, the institution, the academy has changed fairly radically. Uh, the kind of ideas that Mark espouses um, are, to my way of thinking, um, should be just sort of uncontroversial, shall we say. I, I was thinking today, you know, my dissertation supervisor was sort of... A, an unapologetic, unreformed utilitarian, and uh, I'm not. <laughs> and so my dissertation was basically an attack on utilitarian ethical theory, shall we say. And uh, my supervisor was just brilliant at showing me how to construct my argument uh, to bring it out as forcibly, as rigorously as I could, despite the fact that he was, in his essence, if you will, opposed to what I was writing about. And uh, I, I mean, I think that kind of ability to uh, sit back, listen to your uh, interlocutors and say, yeah, I disagree with you, but you are entitled to that kind of idea. I, we, we seem to have lost that thread somehow. And as we discussed at the conference, I, I mean, I think all of us were scratching our heads as to what happened. How did mm -hmm. we lose what was, I think, at bottom, the, the essence of the university, this ability to sit and disagree with each other civilly, have conversations. And uh, Mark and I both share an interest in the political philosopher Michael Oakeshott. And of course, for Oakeshott, 
education is the conversation. That's how we learn about our world is through entering into different kinds of conversations. And part of learning those conversations is learning as well the uh, the virtues and the nuances of having a conversation, mm-hmm. uh, which means, in essence, as you're doing now, Andrew, to sit and nod and, and <laughs> listen and take on board what what others are saying without without having to demonize them and and understand that they too have passions and they too have differing ideas and that they too uh, have good reasons for holding the views that they do do. Um, um, what was it? Churchill, I think, said, uh, 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 what, what, what was his line about uh, a heretic is somebody who, or dogmatist is somebody who uh, can't change the t- subject and won't change his mind, I think, was hmm. the quote, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So I, I think my experience in the academy has been sort of mixed. As I say, I had the the great privilege of having a, a dissertation supervisor who was, as I say, uh, the essence of Millian liberalism. And uh, and then, of course, as my career progressed, what um, one stumbles on certain individuals who don't take that view, shall we say? You briefly mentioned a few moments ago the path that led you to where you are now, Chiang Mai University, and I guess that sparks the question of these phenomena we've been discussing, the issue of institutional wokeness in the academy, the issue Mm of academic freedom and peril, of of not being able to sit down and have the conversations. Is that exclusively a Western phenomenon? I mean, how in your experience working for an Asian university, has that issue manifested, if at all, there? Because I think on a lot of things, political correctness has tended to be a Western creation, but I I don't know if in the academic setting that's held as well. You know, uh, the language of instruction in Chiang Mai is, uh, understandably, it's Thai. And Mm -hmm. I was hired uh, primarily to help with English language instruction. So I'm not really in a good position to talk about it, except to say that I haven't particularly noticed any sort of wokeness, except to say that all of the kind of trends that we see in North America do eventually sort of filter out into Asia at at some point. Uh, But I'm a little insulated from, as it were, the hurly-burly of of the daily uh, discourse. My job in Chiang Mai is basically to assist PhD students in uh, in, uh, writing their dissertations in English. Uh, The Thai government some years ago, in order to improve the English fluency scores in the country, demanded that all dissertations in every discipline be submitted both in the Thai language as well as in English. And of course, this is a huge uh, stumbling block for, for most PhD students. And uh, mm. my, my task is to, to help them with their, uh, with their English dissertation. One of the things I, I really wanted to talk to you about was what you were actually speaking about at that SAFS meeting you mentioned, which was this idea of, of rights talk and the perils thereof. But just to give people in the audience a bit of a primer here, what is rights talk? Well, uh, rights talk is a form of political discourse. Well, let me start that sentence again. Uh, it, it's a form of uh, ethical discourse that has, I think, seeped out into the political realm. Our rights talk has evolved into a kind of fundamentalist language, shall I say. And um, it wasn't always thus. I think 
if we look at the history of rights talk, it goes really right back to the 13th century canonical law. Uh, but subsequent to World War II, and in particular the 1948 Declaration of the Universal Rights of Man, and, uh, and uh, I think we've seen over the past, uh, what shall we say, 50 years, the evolution of a highly individualistic, legalistic, adversarial understanding of rights that sees the world in terms of a, um, a black and white, your rights versus my rights, which I think is enormously unhelpful uh, for so many, for so many issues, political issues certainly, but just in terms of speaking of ethical, moral concerns that all of us have, I'm not sure it's entirely helpful to couch every ethical concern in terms of rights. Um, one of the signal problems with rights that was first uh, noticed by uh, Edmund Burke back in the 18th century was their abstract quality lends to them a kind of absolutism so that when one asserts one's rights, there is a kind of assertion uh, that this is non-negotiable like rights are just what they are, rather than the kind of nuanced uh, sort of political things that, that they ought to be. So my but, talk But just to interject, was, there are certain rights not non-negotiable, and, and do they not have to be viewed as such to have any relevance or any weight? Uh, well, certainly that's the way that our rights talk has evolved now. But I, I think, yes, I think there are some rights that, that are non-negotiable. For example, the right to freedom, the right to liberty, the right to freedom of expression. But what quickly happens with the vernacular of rights talk, if I might put it that way, is that the grammar, our English grammar, allows us to assert practically anything, any desire, any whim, any sort of... Uh, idea that pops into our head as a right. And again, this was first noticed by uh, Edmund Burke, and Jeremy Bentham said the same thing, that by opening up rights talk, we are really opening up a Pandora's box. And famously, Bentham, the 18th century uh, philosopher, said that rights are nonsense on stilts, by <laughs> which he meant that rights have to be tethered to an idea of the good. That is to say, there has to be a tethering of rights to some understanding of the common good. And again, I, I mean, what I said at the conference was hardly original and nothing new, but it seems to me that we've lost sight of this idea that rights have to be tethered to a common good. I, I live in Kelowna, and like a lot of uh, communities these days, we have a, a lot of homeless in, in our community. Mm -hmm. And uh, the conversation around the homeless is ex uh, almost exclusively framed in the context of their rights, the rights of these individuals to be on the street. And one understands that uh, every individual, homeless or not, is entitled to dignity and, 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 and should be respected. But there's another part of the equation that really gets articulated, and that's the idea of, of the commonality, the commonality of the citizens of this city or any other city to enjoy their city without fear of interference. And, and I think I use that only as a small example of the way that our rights talk seems to have evolved over the last 50 years or so, that has become highly individualistic and very legalistic, so that now our 
problems, our political problems, are solved not through, you know, the legislature or through parliament, but rather through advocacy in the courts. So embedded in rights talk, I think, is this adversarial notion. It's your rights versus my rights, and we'll have the judge figure it out. And and that creates, I think, a very unhappy situation for society in the sense that one of us is going to prevail, your rights or my rights, and you or I, one of us is going to be the loser. And unlike the sort of compromises that politicians are forced into, the sort of black and white win-lose nature of rights talk, I think, is unhelpful for the political, uh, for our, our, our polity. I don't think it's a, a healthy development. A lot of people share this view. And in, in, indeed, uh, um, I, I think it was Michael Ignati a few years ago who wrote a little book called The Needs of Strangers. He said one of the signal failures of rights talk is its inability to talk about virtues that are important for the commonality, but which can't be captured in rights talk. Things like love, compassion, honor, friendship, all of those are important ideas in the political sphere, but yet rights talk precludes us talking about them, at least in any meaningful way. Those are the kinds of old-fashioned virtues that seem to me to have been sort of thrown back into the private sphere. I mean, we, you and I, and I think all of us want to have love and friends and all the rest of it in our, in our private life. But where in our political conversations do we find time to talk about those very important ideas? I think. So, yeah, they're they're harder to quantify. I think, which is why the, the more difficult work of holding those things up uh, really becomes uh, in focus here. Well, it's a fascinating talk. I think people should uh, have hopefully have the opportunity to see it. You should take the show on the road. Uh, but in the meantime, definitely check out Patrick Heaney's great piece in C two C about academic freedom and the Society for Academic Freedom. That interview with Mark Mercer. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. That was Professor Patrick Keeney here on The Andrew Lawton Show. My thanks to all of you for tuning in today. We will be back next week with more full strength of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.